one who is to come, or must we wait for another? Please be seated. What a change from last week. As our gospel opens, we are again with John the baptizer, but he is no longer in the wilderness across the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He is no longer prophesying the coming of one mightier than I who will separate the wheat from the chaff and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's no longer surrounded by eager crowds. Instead, John sits in a prison cell locked up by Herod Antipas for his harsh denunciation of Herod's marriage to his brother's wife, and maybe also for his powerful influence on the crowds who flock to hear his preaching. John has gone from preaching to wondering and questioning. Matthew says that John was arrested before Jesus started his active ministry, so he has been imprisoned for many months. He has contact with some of his followers. They've brought him news about Jesus and his ministry of teaching and healing, how he's gathered and sent out disciples as he moves around Galilee. John must have followed the stories about Jesus with keen interest and hope, watching and waiting. But now he is discouraged, uncertain. Jesus is drawing crowds for sure, but where are the judgment and the fire? Where is the radical change? Maybe John is wondering if he was wrong about this coming and what it would mean. And so he sends his friends to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who is to come or must we wait for another? It's an honest, heartfelt question and Jesus honors it, even if he doesn't exactly answer it directly. He doesn't proclaim himself the one. Rather, he points John's emissaries to his ministry and its fruits. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news brought to them. All these things have happened in Matthew's Gospel by this point, and they are key to how Jesus understands his mission. They are outbreaks of joy, of healing and life and liberation. One commentator calls them sacraments of the great restoration, outward and visible signs of the reign of God that is still to come, but is always and already present in the midst of the world. Like Advent, they point to what is both already and not yet. They are, they are invitations to stop and to pay attention, to reflect, to make space, to recognize and welcome the grace of God. Also, they invite participation in the life that Jesus shares, the community that is building. Are you the one we are waiting for? 
You decide, Jesus seems to say. Matthew's description of Jesus' ministry echoes the imagery of Isaiah's radiant prophecy that we heard this morning. It speaks of joy that begins in the natural world, that comforts and strengthens frightened hearts and struggling bodies, that makes a holy way through the wilderness to bring exiles home. Scholars comment that this poem occurs too early in Isaiah's text. It's far more like the promises of the latter part of the book than it is the warnings of the first half of the narrative that surround it. But here it is. It's as if joy erupts irrepressibly in its own time. It blooms from the very heart of the wilderness. It's a foretaste and a promise. Please note how tactile and embodied this joy is. Isaiah speaks to those who are faint-hearted. Literally, it means those whose hearts are racing with fear and anxiety. Do you know what that is? That physical sensation that makes you either freeze up or want to jump out of your skin with fear? Isaiah says, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God who will come with vengeance, who will come and save you. The word translated vengeance might better be rendered vindication. The justice that is coming is not so much the punishment of enemies. Rather, it's the valuing of those who have been hurt and their restoration into a new and right relationship. Isaiah speaks to feeble, vulnerable bodies a word of support and care and wholeness. With our awareness of ableism, we might imagine that the core of the message is a promise of full inclusion, full value, and full participation. Neither blindness, nor loss of hearing, nor difficulty walking will be a barrier to the salvation, the restored community that is coming. What's more, the fullness of joy begins with the earth herself. Human well-being and liberation are utterly entwined with the flourishing of the land and water and animals. The very rivers burst forth in joy and the desert becomes a welcoming path, a way out of no way, a safe place for the redeemed and ransomed of God. Those who were previously exiled and bound, sorrowful and sore afraid, are now claimed and set free for joy and singing as they come home to their own place. Bodies, hearts, and the whole community rejoice. The earth, the trees, the rocks, the waters, and the creatures shout aloud and sing. Speaking of powerful, joy-filled songs, a few minutes ago we joined in the song of Mary, the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, sings the mother of Jesus. She sings that God has cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, filled the hungry with good things, and sent the rich away empty. 
She testifies to mercy and justice, faithfulness and blessing. Mary sings with prophetic confidence as if these things have already happened. Even though she is a poor, pregnant teenager with no husband and a very uncertain future. Even though she lives in an occupied country with surely no more than subsistence resources. But Mary, Mary has heard God's invitation and she has felt God's spirit in her own flesh. With her, yes, and in her sanctified imagination, she joins God's dream of new life and holy liberation. She draws strength and vision from the songs of her foremothers, notably Hannah, who gave birth to Samuel in answer to many prayers and sang in celebration of God who lifts up the poor. Mary sings, rejoicing in the new life that is coming into being in her womb and in the world, and calling all who hear to rejoice with her. Mary, Isaiah, and John are the quintessential prophets and icons of the Advent. They are heralds and bearers of the God who was and is and is to come. Especially this Sunday, they call us to joy as a gift and a practice. As I said in the newsletter this week, the third Sunday of Advent is traditionally known as Gaudete, which means rejoice. I was bemused to learn that John the Baptist is the patron saint of spiritual joy. It seems somewhat ironic, both as we remember him calling those who come to him a brood of vipers, and now as we contemplate him sitting in his prison cell, struggling with questions, doubts, and bone weariness. Probably one reason for John's connection with joy comes from the story that immediately precedes Mary's song. As you know, the newly pregnant Mary, probably grappling with what this angel's annunciation and her yes will do to her life, has hurried to visit her older kinswoman, Elizabeth, who is also in the midst of an unlikely pregnancy with this John who will become the baptizer. At the sound of Mary's greeting, we're told the child in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy, a joy that heralds and celebrates all that is to come. Perhaps our older John, now near the end of his life because of the powerful enemies his preaching has made, is wondering whether he has based his ministry on a mistake. But maybe these questions again become a way to prepare the way, to enter the wilderness of the unknown at an even deeper level, to open a space for God who works in a wilder way than John or we envision. Commentator Stanley Saunders says, Jesus is strong on healing, exorcism, and banquets with highly questionable people, and not so strong on judgment. There's a lot of unlikely joy, and I would even say laughter, in the ministry of Jesus. A depth of mercy and a challenging grace, a sudden divine glory that's present in the most ordinary moments of human life.
Jesus sends John's friends to tell him what they've seen and heard. And then he reflects on the baptizer's ministry. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? He asks the crowd. A reed shaken by the wind? I learned as I researched this passage that the Herods used a reed as a symbol of their lineage and rule and that they and others who collaborated with the Romans to oppress and exploit their own people had lavish houses along the banks of the Jordan. So Jesus is contrasting John with these powerful rulers who have imprisoned him, the powers against which he spoke so eloquently and faithfully. Maybe he's affirming that John has in fact done the work he was called to do. John's story will end with his grisly and capricious death. He will not live to see the justice of God, the advent he proclaimed. Fulfillment does not come in one ministry or even one lifetime, but maybe the joy that that is to come holds and transforms the ones who lean towards it, who herald it, who live for it. So what has all this to do with us on this Gaudete Sunday? First, it speaks to us of the holiness of our doubts, our questions, and even our disillusionments. Maybe we struggle with the persistence of evil and suffering in the world. Maybe we wonder what difference our faith makes or our faith has grown too small. Maybe the Christmas season, with its relentless expectations of good cheer, rubs raw against our losses and griefs and failures. Jesus' response honors John's question, and by extension, all our questions, our needs and feelings and messiness and vulnerabilities. It also invites us to pay attention to new life and joy wherever we may find them. Second, these texts proclaim that God's vision for the world is both humble and vast. Isaiah, in particular, points us to the ecological relationships of mutual care, vulnerability, and attention in which true joy is grounded and nourished. The interconnections of our lives and bodies with our neighbors, the creatures, and the whole body of the earth. We are called to love the more-than-human world with wonder and tenderness and delight and fierce commitment. To witness both its terrible suffering and the joy that still springs up. To know that our futures are vitally bound up together with the future of all creation and to behave accordingly. This is a hard and painful truth especially in our times, but it's fundamentally a joyful truth. Living into it is coming out of exile. It's coming home to our flesh, our creatureliness, and to communion. It is hard and joyful and necessary. Third, in the midst of all the fears and struggles and suffering and injustice of our lives and the world, 
These scriptures call us to joy as a practice, not as denial or toxic positivity, not ignoring loss or pain, but grounded in the promise of God that we are beloved, precious, and made for delight and belonging. If we are to live into Advent hope, preparation, and yes, repentance, if we are to participate in the sacrament of the great restoration, if we are to work for justice and healing and resist the life-denying, soul-stealing powers that, just like Herod, are rampant in our day, we must find and nourish our joy. Poet Laura Martin writes about it this way. I will not tell you to have hope in the future. I say have hope right now. Right now, someone is sweeping the street singing. Someone is folding laundry, sewing a button on, holding out a hand for another to step down more easily. Right now, Someone is buying flowers to give them all away, playing piano in the darkening day, baking bread. Someone is caring for a dog, smoothing a child's forehead, setting down food for a cat. Right now, someone is working for an end to war, for a beginning to a song, for the trees in a forest, for the lights to stay on, for the sun to power a school, for someone cold to be warmed, for someone sick to be healed, for this brilliant earth. It is enough to have hope right now. So, beloved, rejoice. What signs do you see and hear?